Lord, we thank you for, uh, for this passage of Scripture, Lord. We thank you for just seeing the, the power of, of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, just for um, the opportunity to worship together as, as the family, Lord. Would you speak through Ryan today? Would you give us the eyes and hearts to hear? We love you, God, and pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning. It's great to see you guys. Great to be in the Gospel of Mark with you. I got to tell you, it's weeks like this where I just asked the Lord, I asked the Lord literally as we were worshiping over there, are you sure you got the right guy? You know, I mean, like, if, if, if it were up to my life and my personal holiness to be qualified as a pastor, I would not be up here. I can tell you that. But praise be to God, he qualifies the call. Amen? All right, so we're going to dig in together today, and I'll share more about my week, and you can dig into your week as well as you're thinking about that. But man, it's just, just a struggle sometimes to, to walk with the Lord and to, and to walk in holiness and and just the longer you walk with Jesus, the more you see your sin, and it's, it's painful sometimes. Um, but we're in the Gospel of Mark, and we're journeying through this, you know, this book of the Bible, verse by verse. And uh, today we're encountering two unique stories. Uh, and they have to do with two different families that find themselves at the end of their hope and, and, and in a place of desperation. One is a man of significance, a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. A man, of, a man of means, a man of responsibility, and another, a sick, outcasted woman uh, who'd, who'd been ostracized by her community because of her condition. And, and, and he probably wonders, you know, uh, if the Lord has anything for her. But the interesting thing about life is this, is that both of these people from two different places find themselves in the same desperate need. And that's because that's what sin does to each and every one of us, doesn't it? It, it, it leaves us at this place where we're desperate for help. And our desperation takes on many different faces as image bearers of God. Emptiness in the human soul can take on different shapes. I'm reminded of a, an interview uh, with then pop sensation Madonna from, from Vogue magazine about 30 years ago. Did you know she's like 65 now? That's crazy. But anyway, um, here's what she said uh, in, in this interview. And you'll, you'll hear the emptiness in here. My drive in life comes from the fear of being mediocre. Dare we say, empty. That's always pushing me. I, I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being. And then I feel I'm still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I'm somebody. My struggle has never ended Listen to the despair here. I guess it never will. As you hear this confession, do you hear anything in your own story resounding from it? Maybe you've filled your life with experiences that give you a sense of, of fulfillment for a season, or maybe you're facing something in life that shows how empty your soul is, and you don't need anybody to tell you that. Whatever it is, here's what I want you to know this morning, is that uh, what, whatever is the source of what's driving your awareness of your emptiness, it is actually an instrument in the Lord's hand, not a condition to be avoided. And why? Because we need the kingdom of God to break through into our lives so that we can experience only what the Lord can give to us and be exactly who the Lord has called us to be. But in order, in order for that to be in our hearts and our lives, the first the first move of Jesus in our hearts is that we have to have a desperate need for him. This is why in the only full-length sermon that we have that Jesus ever preached called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus opens up with kind of a Debbie Downer for us, doesn't he? Here's how he opens up. He says this, 
obey my commands because I'm God. No, that's not how he opens up the Sermon on the Mount, is it? Matthew 5.3, I see somebody's laughing, that's good. Matthew 5.3 says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the needy, desperate, empty people, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So if I ask you this morning to locate your internal emptiness, could you? Could you take inventory of what's going on in your own life, the Holy Spirit searching you and knowing you, and be aware of the things that drive you to this sense of emptiness? This, for Madonna, it was this kind of performance idol, right? Maybe it's something different for you. Maybe it's something that's just happened in your life that makes you feel empty and worthless, like this woman that's been bleeding. Or maybe it's some kind of condition that's come upon you, some kind of circumstance. Whatever it is, I want you to know that the Lord wants to speak into that this morning through this text. So here's our big idea if you're a note taker today. It's this. The life of faith begins by coming to Jesus with our emptiness. If you walked in here this morning feeling like, man, I really got nothing to give, you are in a great place to see a move of God in your own heart. This is precisely what the characters in our story have in common. They're at the end of themselves, and they're absolutely desperate for Jesus. They are empty. And today we're going to explore how empty people can be filled with the love of God. And to do this, we're going to let this story of Jesus, Jairus, and this bleeding woman from Mark 5 take us where it wants to. Our need is not a problem to him. It is the very conduit of faith. So coming to Jesus empty-handed means that you and I are willing to believe that the thing that we need most in life that I cannot cultivate on my own, that I have to receive it from God. Uh, here's our outline for today. I, I'm just basically looking at some observations of this text, and it's this, is that Jesus is honing in our, on our sense of reputation, on our sense of control, and our sense of despair, and he's messing with all three of them, okay? So, uh, and if you're like me, he's messing with all three at the same time, okay? So uh, you're in good company if, if that's you. So let, let's dig into this together today. Let's look at this idea of reputation first. Jesus saves us from caring more about our name than his. So let me give you some context if you're new here, if you haven't been tracking with us for the last three weeks, but there, there've been, there, this has been a busy day in the life of Jesus, amen? It's been crazy. Jesus likely returned to this place on the sea uh, of, of the shore of Galilee, the, the Sea of Galilee there, um, where he was teaching just the day before. So he was teaching a group of people. Uh, he, he told them some parables about how to be hearers of the word. Um, then he's tired. He gets in the boat. It's nighttime. Uh, he and his disciples go across the Sea of Galilee. Because he's tired, he does what tired people do. He falls asleep, right? He's asleep in the boat. Uh, and then this huge storm comes up. And then his disciples wake him up because they're freaking out, even though they're fishermen, so we know it was a big storm. And he, he calms the storm, and he says, hey, why didn't you have any faith? Why didn't, you, why didn't you believe that I would take care of you, that I would get us to the other side of the shore? And so anyway, they, the, the, the storm is, is stilled, and there's a miracle performed, and Jesus gets to the other side of the sea. Last week, we talked about the whole reason why he went to the other side. The whole reason he went to the other side was to heal this untouchable man, this naked, bloody, demon-possessed man. And Jesus, as soon as he gets off uh, of the, of the, uh, out of the boat onto the shore, the, 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 the demonized man meets him there. And there's this whole interaction where Jesus 
uh, he, he, he heals him of this, this demonic possession, and the man is clothed and seated in his right mind, and he's the first, we said this, and it blew a lot of our minds, right? He was the first commissioned missionary in the Bible, right? Uh, he wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, stay. So he gets back in the boat. Jesus got business to do. He shows back up on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where we pick up. It's been a busy day in the life of Jesus. Verse 21 says this, Jesus crossed again in the boat to the other side, and a great crowd apparently was still waiting. They were gathering. They were waiting for Jesus to come back in, and he was beside the sea, not even out of the boat yet. Then he gets out, and then came, just like the demon-possessed guy came to Jesus immediately when he stepped out of the boat, comes this guy. He, Jesus can't get a step, right? And th this guy is different than, uh, than, than, than Legion, than the guy with the Legion of Demons, He's, he's a ruler of the synagogue. synagogue. He's, his Jairus is his name. And, and Jairus, seeing Jesus, falls at his feet. So Jairus is a respectable man with a reputation as a leader in the Jewish community who had wealth and generally thought of as someone who was pretty well put together. Not a guy who falls at the feet of this, of this new Jewish uh, rabbi who's kind of been on the sea teaching in his synagogue from time to time. A respectable, dignified man does not do this unless he's desperate. Think about this. This guy, if it was the same synagogue, probably saw Jesus heal the man with the withered hand in Mark chapter 3, right? Because Jesus healed him in the synagogue on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees all lost their mind. Jairus' job probably wasn't easy that afternoon, okay? And so, and so he probably saw all of this happen. And so he's kind of skeptical of this guy who's showing up in his synagogue. He probably knew about the other healings that had happened, right? He, this time, is the desperate man, not the man with the withered hand. He's the one in need of a move of God. So he falls prostrate at the feet of Jesus on the sandy shore of the Sea of Galilee. And, and, and the text says this. He implored him, verse 23, earnestly saying, a little daughter, she's at the point of death. You gotta come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And this is the thing that blows me away. Jesus doesn't say anything, what's he do? He went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about. So Jairus comes up, he says, Listen, I know dignified guys don't do this. People of means don't do this. But my little girl's sick. And anybody who's got a little girl in here knows you'll do whatever you can when your little girl's sick. Amen? And so he shows up, pushes his way through the crowd, and he's at the feet of Jesus. He said, Jesus, you got to do something. And the craziest thing happens. Jesus simply responds to this man's desperation. And if you're in a season where it seems very clear how desperate you are for Jesus. Do not forget this scene, friend. Jesus went with him. Now, well, here's what happens, is that Jairus's problem has become Jesus's problem. And when our problems become Jesus's problems, there's really good things in store for us, amen? Now, it doesn't happen the way that Jairus draws it up, right? There's this whole other scene we're gonna, we're gonna read about in a second. But don't forget that Jesus went with him. Now, there's a cost to following Jesus. For Jairus, it was, I mean, it's arguably his reputation here, right? He's putting himself out there. He's a ruler of the center. He's gonna catch a lot of flack for this, but he's desperate, and that's the thing that drives him. 
There is a cost to following Jesus. And just like every other instance, Jesus gives us more than we bargain for when we follow him. Sometimes following Jesus feels a lot more like loss than gain. Peter had the guts to actually say this to Jesus one time. It was what everybody was thinking, and Peter just said it, right? Here's what he says. Uh, Mark chapter 10, later on in the Gospel of Mark, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you, Jesus. Come on. And Jesus says to him, truly, I say to you, Peter, there's no one who's left his house, who's left his brother or sisters, his mother or his father, his children or his lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and land with, with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Now, of course, this isn't prosperity gospel 101 here. Jesus is saying the blessing that you will receive, it'll, it'll be like the, the loss is incomparable to what, to what following Jesus is gonna give to your life because it's giving something to you eternally. How can you calculate that? The gospel means this, that we get to trade our reputation for his reputation. Now, there may be an immediate cost to that. In fact, if there isn't a cost to you following Jesus, you might wanna see if you're following him because there is a cost to following Jesus. And sometimes it's painful for each and every one of us, but the cost for Jesus was far greater than we could ever imagine. Jesus left it all to identify with broken, sick, and desperate criminals. The scripture calls us enemies, right? And he came, forsook his reputation, and dwelt among us. And that's what gives us the courage to sometimes be misunderstood. And I'm reading into a little bit of Jairus' situation, but his reputation was at stake. It's what gives us the courage to be taken advantage of at times, because we know that there's nothing we've lost that he didn't lose first, and there's nothing that's been taken from us that won't be more than restored in eternity. And that's what gives us the courage, because he is the one that has led the way for us. In your emptiness and desperation, are you willing to publicly identify with Jesus? You see, Jairus was, and so Jairus, I gotta imagine, is like, Jesus, come on this way, right? I mean, he's, he's kind of bringing Jesus to where his house is. The disciples are following. I don't know how big this crowd is, but it's big because it's called a throng, and that's a big word, right? And so they're all following him, and then this next thing kind of blows my mind because Jesus' timetable is quite different than ours. The second thing that Jesus is messing with in us is our sense of control. Jesus saves us from caring more about our agenda than his will. Like I said earlier, I've had a couple of kind of rough weeks. I mean, I just haven't felt like I've been myself. Say it's back to school. Say it's, you know, the fact that I got sick in Honduras. I don't know what it is, but everyone around me, it seems like is doing great until they cross my path, right? I'm just like a mess. And, uh, and I don't know how to live any other way. So if you, if you expect your pastor or preacher to be put together, you got the wrong church. But um, but I've just had this sense, and I was talking to my discipleship group about this, about just being out of control. Um, you know, whether that be the anger that I shared last week or, or with the interruptions and intrusions that I felt this week, you know, extra meetings for kids stuff, no offense teachers, but it's a lot. Uh, you know, interruptions and, and different intrusions, you know, dentist, root canals, yes, again. And it just seems like every little thing is an irritant to my sense of peace. And I think it's because I've been counting on myself to cultivate peace 
And I just can't seem to be disciplined enough to fight it. I mean, I'll be doing great in part of a day, and then all of a sudden something will go sideways, and it's like the worst day of my life. It's crazy. I feel like an emotional roller coaster. But the thing that the Lord showed me uh, yesterday morning was this. And I, I think I, it's like I'm just learning this all over again, that peace cannot be cultivated. It can only be received. And, and, and the reason I say that is because peace is a fruit of the Spirit. You can have the appearance of peace. You can have the appearance of being put together and your life kind of going smooth. But the fruit of the Spirit's peace, love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all those good things that Jesus gives to us when we abide in him. It's a fruit of the Spirit, a byproduct of being in Jesus. So on his way to be with Jairus, back to our story here, uh, and his sick 12-year-old daughter and their family, here's what happens. The crowd's moving to Jairus' house. There's this woman, right? And, and she's had this discharge of blood, verse 25, for 12 years, who had suffered much under many physicians, who had spent all that she had and was no better, but she grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Now, Jairus wasn't the only one desperate for Jesus to come through. This, this story is so incredibly relatable to, to so many of us. Here's a lady who's ceremonial, ceremonially unclean, and it's because of her blood issue. She hasn't been able to go to the synagogue for 12 years because she's unclean, and there's nothing that she can do about it. She's the equivalent of a leper in this day and age. And you can read more about the ceremonial, ceremonial it's a hard word this morning, customs of, um, of, of this day and age um, in Leviticus 15, if you're interested. I don't have time to get there this morning, but it feels, what you need to know is this, is her situation feels very hopeless. The best case scenario for her was kind of a touch and run healing. I mean, that's where she was in life. She was completely desperate. And, and in touching and running, she is making this, the, the, the king of kings unclean, right? I mean, it is a bold move. And the assumption that she's making is that Jesus will just treat her like everyone else does, right? Like a leper, like someone to be avoided. So she, she, sought, she had sought, what other, other things we know about her story, she had sought relief from everywhere imaginable. And her medical bills, and I'm preaching to the choir for some of you, had, near, had bankrupted her is what the scripture says. And here's the thing. She was only getting worse. Friends, if this isn't your story, you know somebody where this is their story, right? For she said this, verse 28, if I could just touch his garments, I'd be made well. If I could just get close enough to touch him. Verse 29, and immediately the, the flow of blood dried up just like that. And she could feel it in her body that she was healed of this disease, the scripture says. But Jesus can feel it too. That's the thing about Jesus, right? We don't just bring our pain to him and he's just like, okay, you know, either I'm gonna heal you or you're gonna have to live with this. No, he feels the woman's pain just like he feels our pain. And he perceives in himself, verse 30, that power had gone out from him and immediately he turns about in the crowd and he says, who touched my garment? And his disciples said to him, are you kidding me, Jesus, basically? Like there's a huge crowd. How are you gonna say who touched my garment? But he's locked in, he's dialed in, he knows that something has happened. So she goes through with her plan here. But the thing is, is Jesus is connected to her because Jesus doesn't just heal people, he connects with them. And he feels her presence, he recognizes her faith, and he sees her out of all of the people in the crowd. And he loves her too much to let her stay in the shadows. So what he does? 
what a good, loving God does. He calls her straight out, doesn't he? Now, this lady had probably been called out, but for different reasons before, right? Because when Jesus saves you, he calls you to go public with it, not just hide in the shadows. This lady wanted to have control over her life and her healing. She wanted to avoid the shame and embarrassment, further shame and embarrassment. But Jesus will not allow her to stay in the hiding in the shadows and partake in some kind of superstitious healing, some kind of superstitious redemption. He calls her out, out of the whole crowd, and he says, come clean, who touched me? Verse 33, the woman, knowing what had happened, came in, she comes in fear and trembling to Jesus, right? And she falls down before him. Looks pretty similar to the last three characters we looked at, right? Demon-possessed guy, Jairus. And what does she do? Scripture says she tells him the truth. No, Scripture says it tells him the whole truth. She comes clean because when you've been found out, you got nothing left to hide. That's where she's at. That's what it looks like to go public with who you are in Christ. Because walking by faith requires exposure, doesn't it? You can't hang on to all your secrets and expect to hang on to Jesus at the same time. It doesn't work like that. So Jesus, while on the way to Jairus' house, takes the time to not just heal this woman by just kind of walking by her and just kind of moves on because he's got to get to Jairus' house. He takes the time to connect with her. He connects with her story. And it wasn't the bleeding that mattered most is what he wants to tell this story. When we typically come to Jesus, usually it isn't the main thing that needs to be addressed. There's a healing below the healing that Jesus is after. What, what needed to be addressed? It was the shame. It was the embarrassment. It was the separation that she felt from God and others because of her condition. And he came to heal that church. Jesus didn't just, she didn't just get healed physically. Think about this. She got to go home. completely restored. She got to be restored to more than a decade of severed relationships. She got way more than she bargained for when she came to Jesus, just like we all do. But it required courage, desperation, and honesty. Listen to how Jesus responds to her after she spills the truth. He, he covers her vulnerability. Here's what he says. Daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. He says, friend, daughter, because of your faith, your faith to approach me, your faith to come clean with the truth and really go public with your faith, because of all this, for the first time in a long time, maybe the first time in your life, you can actually have peace. You're not just a woman who's bleeding and untouchable anymore. Instead, you are a child of God who is fully known, fully loved, and at peace with God and others. Again, more than she could ever imagine that God would do for her. And that's the healing that our hearts really need to, to go in peace. Peace meaning this, a settled disposition in life because you know that God is for you even when the world seems to be falling apart around you. And this is the gospel, Right? The peace that this woman enjoys is a gift, just like I'm experiencing this week. It's a gift given to her by Jesus as he identifies with a seemingly unidentifiable person. I'm reminded of John chapter 14 when Jesus is promising to give the Holy Spirit as he's with his disciples in the upper room. 
Here's what he says to them about peace, this holistic shalom, this flourishing that we're all after. Peace I leave with you, Jesus says. My peace I give to you. Not the kind you can cultivate and create and schedule on your agenda. No, no, no. Peace that passes understanding. That's what we're after. He says, not as the world gives do I give to you. It's not a circumstantial peace. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You see, fear is an enemy of peace. We see that in Jairus' story as well. Jesus carries the peace that he has had with the Father since the beginning of time and shares it with all who will believe in his name. Jesus is, is living all of his life present with us as his people, but he's also got his face on the Father. That's why he, he can afford to be interrupted by this woman that's desperate for his touch. And it changes everything about what he does. I think about Jairus, right? So he's watching all of this happen, right? He has to, I mean, he has to be looking at his watch. I mean, pacing back and forth, right? I mean, I would be losing my mind. Have you ever been in a hospital waiting room before? That's what this is like. Jairus is just there watching this happen, wishing that it could happen for his own daughter. The clock is ticking. The scene causes us to step back and remember that he's doing more than we could ever imagine in the middle of our waiting. And Jesus will not be hurried, church. The greatest, the greatest healing he accomplishes is in our souls. And because of that, we have to remember that when things don't go as we'd hope they, they will, it does not mean that he's not near or present with us. Lastly, the, the thing we've got to address is this. It's this theme of despair by everyone in Jairus' family that has to be addressed. Despair. Jesus gives us a hope beyond the healing. You say, Ryan, this doesn't make any sense. There is no hope beyond healing. That's the best news imaginable, right? That these people are healed. And I would say this, it really depends on what you mean by healing. When most of us think about healing, we think about an instantaneous relief from the pain of this life. And while that's part of it, it's a very small slice of what Jesus desires to bring into my life, into your life. And regarding this healing, the reality is, and, and this is pretty blunt, Jairus' daughter still dies eventually. And so does the woman that he healed of the bleeding. But their souls live. And that makes all the difference. So to make this primarily about physical, immediate healing is to miss what Jesus is offering. It'd be like pastoral malpractice to just, you know, go get your healing if you have enough faith, right? That's not what he's talking about here. He finds us in despair and he gives us a hope beyond the healing, church. And that's how I can stand up here in the face of so many of you in this room who have prayed for God to heal people and he's not done it the way you thought he would. So I was terrified to stand up here this week because I remember your stories, how we've grieved as a church, how God doesn't seem that he's come through in some of these stories. To stand up here and make it about that's to miss the whole thing. Friends, there's, there's a reason he let this little girl apparently die before he got there. There's a reason he let die, Lazarus die before he raised him because all that we see is about the eternal power of God. So may we be sober-minded even as we read this today. It's not to take away from those in the church who have been healed miraculously. We've seen that too. It's just to say there's a healing beyond the healing. 
that really Jesus is after for us. So here's, here's what happens in Mark 5 here. While he was still speaking, there, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's the bearer of bad news here. And overhearing what they said, Jesus says to the ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, do not fear, only believe. Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he entered in, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. We know what happens when you laugh at Jesus. But he put them all outside and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And he went in where the child was and taking her by the hand, he said, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Just two things I wanna, wanna lean into here. Jesus enters all the way into our pain. Each and every one of us will be on that deathbed that that little girl's on at some point in our lives. Unless we happen to live in the, the generation where Jesus returns, which might happen, right? But each and every one of us will be on that bed that that little girl's on. And I want you to pay close attention to the bedside manner of the great physician. First things first, he keeps the crazy out of the room. You see that? He keeps those people out. He says, mom and dad, let's come in. Now the crazy in our day may not be weeping and wailing, but it could be the ones that saying, well, at least she's in a better place now. Or at least she's not suffering. Man, get out of here, right? Never say that to someone who's suffering. Sit with them. Jesus cares well for the family. He tenderly invites mom and dad and Peter and James and John. He wants to show them his power. He gives them a glimpse behind the curtain of who he is. And what he does next, we should never forget because Jesus does what only he can do in the face of death. He gently, tenderly, yet forcefully and resolutely conquers death, church. He says, little girl, the equivalent of the American, honey, get up. And that's ultimately what he whispers to each and every one of us as we face the temporary grave this life will give to us, that this is not the end of the story. Jesus is reminding us that it's going to be okay, that this won't last forever. This look at death was ultimately about the death that each and every one of us will face and how we can face it with confidence because he will say to each and every one of us, arise. And the dead, as, as the book of Second uh, Thessalonians says, the dead will rise, right? They'll meet Christ in the air. He'll give us new bodies. We'll celebrate the marriage supper of the Lamb. There'll be no more weeping or tears or death anymore because it is finished. He's giving us a glimpse of that with this little girl here. The other thing that we see is this, is that Jesus is drawn toward us in despair. I think one of the purposes of the miraculous in the Bible, and I, I, I'm not gonna do a whole sermon on that. We don't have time for that today. But one of the purposes of the miraculous in the Bible is to help us see the purpose of suffering in the first place. Healing does not rescue us from suffering. 
Because suffering is preparing us for salvation, and Jesus cannot help but prepare you for salvation. So you are going to suffer, is what the scriptures say. Anytime we see Jesus heal someone that's broken by sin, he's always seeking a deeper connection, a deeper healing of the heart, not just the physical. And both of these healings give us a glimpse of what our hearts are, are truly made for. You know, the first one, a life of peace instead of shame with this bleeding woman. Secondly, a life of desperately confident hope instead of despair. And all of this is working in my life and in your life because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. So while we wait and while we suffer, what is Jesus up to? Just want to give you three, three quick little uh, mini-sermon here on suffering, okay? Three, three things I don't want you to forget about suffering because I think we, 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 um, we, we kind of set up healing and suffering next to each other, and I don't think it works like that. We're still going to suffer. We're going to have trouble, Jesus says, right? The first thing that suffering does is this, is it cultivates our dependence. He can't help but cultivate dependence in you. He's after that in you. 2 Corinthians 1 says this, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And Paul says, indeed, we felt like we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. When you are suffering, God is cultivating your dependence. He's exposing the ways that you trust in yourself instead of him. Secondly, it's preparing us for eternity, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, this light momentary affliction, and when you read the context, this is not really light and momentary in my book. You know, this is heavy stuff he's dealing with. He says, this light, it's like a light and momentary affliction, but it's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond anything that you can compare it to. When you suffer, don't forget that he's preparing you for eternity. He's showing you what it's gonna be like in eternity. And lastly, it reminds us of the resurrection. Philippians 3 says this, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. Who doesn't wanna know the resurrection of Christ? And may share in his suffering. So that comes with the knowing of the resurrection, being reminded of the resurrection is the suffering. See, the truth is, is that anything is possible when you're willing to come to Jesus with empty hands. That's what he requires, a sense of emptiness. So do not let your suffering and God's will tell you any different story than that. Ultimately, when we go to Jesus for help, we get far more than we ever bargained for. And there is absolutely nothing that we have lost in this life as his people that will not be restored than we could ever imagine in the next. And that's a reason to sing. That's a reason to, to praise the Lord. That's a reason to endure anything that life deals us, church. So my prayer is that you've been encouraged this morning, that you've been filled with hope, and you might be willing to come to him with your emptiness. So let's pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God together, proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.